I don't think that we can ever pray too much. So before we read God's word, let's pray again and ask God to bless the reading and hearing of his holy word. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we now prepare to receive your holy and errant infallible word, give to us a spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of Christ so that the eyes of our hearts might be enlightened. Help us to know and to be established in the hope to which you have called us, the riches of the glorious inheritance in the states and the immeasurable greatness of your power at work in us. We pray this through Christ our Lord. Amen. Scripture reading this morning, again, is from Acts chapter 17, beginning in verse 16 and going to the end of the chapter, verse 34. Hear the word of the Lord, it is written. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him. As he saw that the city was full of idols, so he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling and hearing something new. So, <coughs> so Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens... I perceive in every way that you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you wish, you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God. And perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. 
Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysus, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Now to him who loves us, who has freed us from our sins by his blood, to Jesus Christ, be all glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. This past Sunday, we considered how Paul was provoked by the idolatry that he found in Athens. And we noted how Paul responded to it by engaging the citizens of Athens, proclaiming Christ to them. And Paul sets an example for us in evangelizing out of a jealousy for the name of our Lord to be great among the nations, that our God might receive the glory and honor and praise that he is rightly due. We do believe, after all, that Jesus Christ has been exalted and has the name that is above every name, the name at which every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That day is coming. As we return to Paul's time in Athens this morning, we discover that some of these intellectual philosopher types in Athens responded to Paul's proclamation of the atoning death and victorious resurrection of Jesus Christ with sarcasm. They called him a babbler. Literally in the Greek, this means seed picker, a word initially used to describe birds, but had begun to be used for someone who pushed others' ideas as original without actually understanding them. In other words, they thought of the Apostle Paul and his ideas as someone who was peddling plagiarized ideas, which he didn't understand. Not exactly the result that Paul was hoping for, we can be sure. The insult is not without irony, though. Luke tells us in verse 21 that all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling and hearing something new. They were actually the babblers, those who loved to discuss ideas, always chasing after the latest and greatest, but never really open as the Bereans were to having their minds changed by truth. They just loved to toy with ideas. They weren't, as the Bereans were, eager to receive God's word for themselves, zealous to examine the scriptures daily and willing to be transformed by it. And Luke is almost certainly revealing to us a contrast between those whom Paul had formally presented the gospel and those he now found himself in the midst of. There is a judgment being proclaimed here of those who love the idea of God, who love to think about God, but who never really intend to submit themselves to God and place faith in him. The devil is happy for us to think all day about God, even orthodox thoughts about God, if we aren't doing so for the purpose of forming relationship with him and committing ourselves to obeying him in faithful obedience. 
But this pursuit of the new, the dazzling, the sensational did afford Paul an opportunity to proclaim Jesus Christ before the Areopagus, which was the main administrative body and the chief council for Athens. This is a big deal for him to have this audience. It was a court before whom civil and criminal cases were once heard. The Areopagus also had some jurisdiction in religious matters and was regarded, as John Stott noted, as the guardians of the city's religion, morals, and education. Some have suggested that it was this council that was licensed, uh, who licensed traveling lecturers. So Paul was brought here to be given a hearing to see if he would be allowed to continue to teach or not there in Athens. Although there's no indication that there was any sort of legal charge presented against Paul, nor was there any sort of judicial process. And further, we find no verdict or sentence here to suggest that there was any sort of formal trial. Paul, it seems, was brought here simply for a public hearing of sorts to satisfy the curiosity of the philosophers who wanted a fuller hearing of these strange ideas that Paul was promoting. Now, for the sake of understanding the context, we need to understand that the Areopagus was not just a council. It was also a hill, a place, since this is what the term literally means, the hill of Ares. Ares was the Greek god of war, who, myth says, stood trial on this very hill for the murder of one of Poseidon's sons. Now, the Roman equivalent to Ares is Mars, hence the name Mars Hill, which is the name by which we might know this location. So Paul wasn't just brought before a group of people. He was brought to a place. And this is important because when Paul stands before this council on Mars Hill, he was quite literally surrounded by temples and statues devoted to pagan gods, thousands of them. Before him was the temple of the Greek god Hephaestus, just to the northwest was the upper city, the famed Acropolis, where there were many temples, most prominent among them, the Parthenon. So when Paul spoke here, what he said was in the midst of these symbols of the Athenians' idolatry. And those to whom he spoke were some of the best minds, not only in Athens, but in all of the ancient world. The Areopagus was the most exclusive philosophical review board in the world. Simply put, this is a pretty intimidating place to be proclaiming any idea. But Paul's speech here was brilliant. We find Paul being courteous and conciliatory in his address, but he was also firm and unyielding in his proclamation of the gospel. He did not shy away from insisting that there is only one true God who deserves our worship and holds us accountable for our sin. 
And he delivered this speech to an audience that, as one commentator notes, had an ambivalent relation to foreign gods. On the one hand, they were famous for incorporating alien deities into their pantheon, their collection of gods. On the other hand, they believed that they must stay vigilant lest new gods undermine the morals of the state. But it was not only Paul's boldness in his proclamation that was impressive rather what he did exceedingly well was to present the gospel in a way that engaged his listeners with the truth even as he battled the contemporary philosophies and ideologies that were dominant in Athens he used popular ideas to create connections to his listeners for the purpose of presenting the one true God in a way in which they could understand and relate. And what he won here, if nothing else, was a hearing for the gospel by the reasonableness of its presentation. And it's worth looking at and examining because the context in which we find ourselves today in 21st century America is not, in the end, much different than the one that Paul found himself in there in ancient Athens. And we see all of this from the very beginning of his speech, which he began by stating that he had perceived that the Athenians were in every way very religious. Now Paul noted, for as I pass along and observe the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. They had, in fact, set up temples all over the city. This was an unavoidable reality. And Paul began his address to them in this way, not to be antagonistic, but simply as a point of contact. Uh, certainly, this idolatry was sickening to him, but his opening comments were merely recognizing that their religiosity was very important to them. They even had this Altar to an unknown God, which indicated that they didn't want to offend any gods that they could have missed, any gods which they were ignorant of. They wanted to ensure all of their spiritual basis were covered. So before Paul pushed them on the folly of their idolatry, he took up their own acknowledgement of their ignorance. It wasn't merely a point of contact then. It was a point of contact that allowed him to take his Athenian audience precisely where he wanted to get them to go. And here's the thing. Here's the thing. The Athenians were supposed to know everything. They were supposed to know everything. From a worldly perspective, their knowledge was vast. They were intelligent people, learned people. But on the most important issue, on the most important truth, they came up short. They did not know God. And they acknowledged it. It was written in stone in their city. And Paul merely pointed out what they themselves admitted by having an altar to an unknown God, right? 
We can be sure that the irony of what Paul spoke to them on that day was not lost on them. And with this, Paul would now reveal to them the truth of this matter on which they themselves had confessed ignorance. Verse 23, what therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. And he would now tell them about God using a, a few very basic points from which Paul would form a very simple argument. And here it is. First, God is the creator of all things. Second, God is the sustainer of all things. And third, God is the ordainer of all things. Three-point sermon. By way of these three points, Paul firmly established that because God created and sustained all things, that it is not we who provide for him, but He who provides for us, God needs nothing from us. And without God holding all things together, the entire universe would fly apart. And not only is God holding all things together, but he has a plan for his creation. And all things are working together according to his purpose. He rules sovereignly over his creation. Nothing is happening by chance. Things aren't moving along due to some cosmic accident. Now, these three points about God might seem really simple and fundamental to us. There's nothing here that we might see as particularly earth-shaking. But it challenged the audience's whole theology. Paul wasn't just laying out what we believe about the one true God. He was doing it in a way, as R. Kent Hughes notes, directly attacked the Epicureans' belief that God was absent. That directly attacked the Stoics' belief that God was in everything. As the giver of life, God is actively here, but he is not contained in his creation. Do you see this? And after Paul established these three main points about God, Paul then drew some conclusions, some applications. And here's where Paul really brought it home. If God created us, sustains us, and determines the bounds of our habitations and our destiny, then we have an obligation to seek God and to find him. And underneath these three basic points about God is the doctrine of creation that is asserting that God has not left himself without a witness in creation, but that God can be known at least generally through his creation. This is Paul's very same argument in Romans 1. Romans 1, 19 and 20. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. No one can claim utter ignorance of God. The Athenians might not have had the special revelation found in the scriptures, but they could look up at the heavens and around at the earth, the ordering of creation, and see something of who God is. And Paul was telling them that even more than that, God had revealed himself in order that we might seek him out. I want to note here something because it's easy for us to miss. What Paul says here about 
feeling their way toward God, groping around for God in verse 27 is the same wording used in the Greek poet Homer's well-known story of Cyclops, the one-eyed giant who was blinded by Odysseus after being captured by him. And even after blinding him, Odysseus found it difficult to escape from Cyclops because he was groping around, feeling after Odysseus that he might find him and kill him. Paul's making the point that even in our blindness, we should be trying to find God. We still have an obligation to feel around after God. But here were the Athenians worshiping unknown gods and idols made with human hands. And Paul then announced to them that the time of ignorance is long past, that God had commanded people everywhere to repent. And and what did they need to repent of? Their immorality? Well, sure, they needed to repent of that. Their intellectual arrogance and pride? Well, yeah, they needed to repent of that too. But in particular here, Those things weren't what Paul was referring to. It is their idolatry. God had revealed himself first in nature and now in the person of Jesus Christ who had been shown to be God in his resurrection from the dead. So all of this works together to reveal the futility of the Athenians' idolatry. It was utter foolishness. These people so wise. And while they might not know of their other sins they had no excuse at this point and why must they repent well Paul revealed to them the truth that humanity wasn't moving toward extinction as the Epicureans thought nor toward absorption in the cosmos as the Stoics supposed but humankind was moving toward divine judgment This is how Paul concluded his address to the Areopagus. God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. No one will be able to claim ignorance on that day. No one will be able to say, but but I I was a good person. No one will be able to say, "But, but I worshiped in a way that felt good to me. Either we sought to know God as he revealed himself and we sought to bring ourselves into alignment with his revelation of himself or we willingly went on our own way to our own destruction. This is not the truth that the Athenians took lightly. But I hope we can see the brilliance of Paul's address here, not only because it was laid out so simply, but also because of how directly it seeks to communicate to the Athenians in particular. Paul shows us here how to approach the proclamation of the gospel in a context like Athens. Paul makes a concerted effort to connect to his audience, to garner their attention, to speak to them in a language and rhetoric that they could understand and relate to. In other words, Paul contextualized the gospel for the Athenians. And any individual who wishes to be faithful to Christ's call to go to the unreached 
must take seriously the challenge of contextualizing the gospel in this way. Now, we might notice something sort of odd here. As a means of contextualization, Paul quoted Greek writers whom the audience knew and respected. In addition to the Homer reference, Paul quotes two other well-known Greek authors in verse 28. Now, that doesn't mean that he agreed with the entirety of what these writers uh, that he quoted believed or even the philosophical system from which they wrote. Rather, his use of these authors was another point of contact with his audience. It was a way for him to help his audience realize that these writers that they respected recognized in part the very truth he was proclaiming. And even as he directly quoted these Greek authors, he used no direct quotations from Scripture. Now, we might ask why he didn't appeal to Scripture directly. We might even criticize his approach at this point. Don't we believe that there is power in the Word of God? Well, of course we do. But Paul realized in this context, for those who had no working knowledge of Scripture, who would refuse to acknowledge it as authoritative, a direct appeal to Scripture would be pretty meaningless. It doesn't mean, though, and this is very important, that his entire message wasn't thoroughly scriptural. As a great biblical scholar, F.F. Bruce, noted, Paul's argument is firmly based on biblical revelation. It echoes throughout the thought and at times the very language of the Old Testament. So here's our takeaway. If, If we are to use Paul as our model, then there will be times we should seek to find points of contact with those we encounter in the world that they can relate to outside of the Scriptures in order that we could draw them to biblical truths. Tim Keller does this really well. And we need to understand that contextualizing the gospel can be done regardless of the audience. It might not be contextualization of the gospel to connect with philosophers. It could be to connect with some other audience, those in our workplace, those out on the street, those who adhere to another world religion or who are strictly secular. Nonetheless, Paul shows us here that we should be seeking to reach a wide spectrum of people and that this might require some creative strategizing. Now, it doesn't mean that we change the elements essential to the gospel we see here how paul emphasizes a creator god to whom we are accountable if people do not recognize their sin in the seriousness of sin against a holy god who is the supreme lord of the universe then they are they will not be able to understand the need of a savior These are essential elements of the gospel message. People need to comprehend, at least in part, the offense of sin to God and the price he paid to redeem us. Or else they'll never appreciate what Christ has done for them on the cross. And if they cannot appreciate the work of Christ, then they will not know the kindness of God, which leads us to repentance and faith. But as we look at this passage, we might wonder how it relates to our own context. In fact, it might seem to be a 180-degree difference from our context. After all, 
an everyday person living in modern America might not look kindly on being called religious as the Athenians did. Many are proud to announce that they are non-religious. And we can't expect too much from those who are increasingly following a, a man who declared religion to be the opiate of the masses. It's therefore considered by many in our society to be decidedly ignorant to adhere to any traditional religious belief. And the studies show that we have in America a growing number of people who are referred to as the nuns. That is N-O. N-E-S, not N-U-N-S. This is a group of folks who do not claim any religious affiliation. They are not Christian. They don't claim to be Muslim or Jewish or Buddhist or Hindu either. They are religiously unaffiliated and have rejected anything that could be considered a traditional religious worldview. And while this title might be new, it's not a new phenomenon it was back in 1966 that Time Magazine posted this question, Is God Dead? on the front cover of its magazine. And really, it was long before 1966 that humankind declared that it didn't need or want God. So at first glance, we in our context don't have the same contact point that Paul had with the Athenians who were proud of their religiosity, who acknowledged their ignorance. But I think that we would be very mistaken to think that the nuns are not religious. They consider themselves to be non-religious. They pride themselves on being non-religious because they don't claim to believe in God or at least a knowable God. But they are, in fact, religious. Just as Paul recognized of the Athenians, you do not have to have a known, identified God to be religious because here is the thing, every worldview is shaped by a particular theology. We live in light of what we believe about ultimate things. Our lives are shaped by how we answer questions like, what is the meaning of life? And even if we answer there is no meaning, it's still expressing a belief in God, either that there is no God or that there is a God who is removed and uninterested as the Epicureans believed. Every worldview then is shaped by a theology and there are beliefs that go along with every worldview. There is religiosity, rituals and rites that go along with atheism, believing that there is no God or agnosticism, believing that there might be a God but that that God is unknowable. People cannot help it. The pesky little thing is that we were created to worship and we will worship. We will either worship the one true living God or we will be willfully ignorant and worship something else. And here in America, there are a plethora of gods that are worshiped. I think that we could pretty quickly identify what some of these gods are and we can figure them out in the same way that Paul figured out what the Athenians were worshiping. He had perceived that they were religious because he could walk around and observe their objects of worship. 
We can see that Americans are religious because we can see their places of worship. And I'm not talking about those places with steeples. I'm talking about the places where Americans carry out their rituals with great regularity and where idols made with human hands are worshipped, where devotion is displayed, where religious authorities call for obedience to truth where homage is paid, where sacrifices are made. Remember where Paul found this inscription to an unknown God? It was on an altar. What are altars used for? Sacrifices, right? And why were they making sacrifices? As a form of worship, but specifically for the purpose of appeasing a God. Why would one need to appease a God? Well, because this God had been offended in some way. And there are still sacrifices being made to the gods of secular culture today, aren't there? The worst types of sacrifices. And it's a never-ending line of sacrifices, innocent victims, because no atonement in this religious system will ever be enough to cover the staggering amount of accumulated guilt. This is our reality. It isn't too far away from the reality of ancient Athens where we find the Stoic pantheism, everything is God, and the Epicurean materialistic deism, God is removed and this life is all there is. We aren't too far away as a nation from this city of great culture, this center of arts and learning that is drowning in idolatry. We Americans pride ourselves on the same things. We fancy ourselves to be spiritual but not religious, loving to dabble in spiritual things, picking and choosing what we like, rejecting any revelation of God outside of ourselves. We also fancy ourselves to be of great intellect. We love to dabble in new ideas and fill our heads with lots of facts, mostly about useless things. But on the most important thing, we are willfully ignorant. And this means that if what Paul proclaimed to the Athenians was true of them, then it's all the more true here in America. If you are ignorant of God, then you are willfully ignorant. And increasingly, I think that we see that some of this secular religion isn't just mildly religious. It has become quite fervent. Many are becoming very religious, as Paul said of the Athenians. So not only are many of the self-identified nuns indeed religious, but they are religious as to be fundamentalists. They hold firmly to their worldview. They are entirely devoted to it. We are seeing this, aren't we? We're seeing people demand conformity to their worldview in thought and in practice, threatening to punish those who seek to dissent. There has been a great awakening in America in the past decade. And this is a worse type of fundamentalism because it's fundamentalism without Christ. As one pastor recently said of the secular religion found in America, it's, it's a hard legalism without any grace. This is what we have in America. But I want to encourage you with this this morning before we conclude. Even as Paul found the context of Athens to be particularly difficult in terms of evangelism, there were conversions there. 
even a member of the Areopagus. Even as his fellow Areopagites mocked, Dionysius fell on his knees and worshiped Jesus as Lord. Only by a miracle could this have happened. That is what we would acknowledge if an atheist philosophy professor from one of the most elite universities in the United States converted to Jesus Christ, isn't it? But it happened in Athens because through God, all things are possible. And even though it was an environment ripe with hard-heartedness, the sort of environment where ideas are fine as long as they are theoretical, But as soon as action is called for, as soon as one is called to see the Christian God as the one true God who is jealous for our worship, who calls us to serve him alone, before whom alone we are all accountable, as soon as that happens, people begin to grow very uncomfortable. Even though it's a difficult environment for the gospel to penetrate and take root, seeds were planted there in Athens because people were still looking to deal with with the problem of their guilt. The altars to the unknown gods point to the recognition of brokenness, sin, sin that the secular nuns in modern culture refuse to admit exists, and yet, and yet they can't get away from the deep sense that something is very wrong. They can't get away from the overwhelming sense of guilt, and they're looking for anything anything to satisfy it. So here we are encouraged to speak to people the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Find ways, brothers and sisters, find ways to communicate them that they have a sense of guilt because we are accountable to a creator God and tell them that the debt has been paid. Tell them that there is grace by the blood of Jesus Christ. Tell them that forgiveness has been offered in the cross of Jesus Christ. Tell them that there is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus our Lord. Tell them that they can have peace with God through Christ. So tell them to come to Christ, to turn away from the futility of their idols and from worship to unknown gods and turn and Give their worship to the only one who is worthy. The lamb who was slain for us and our salvation. He is worthy. He is worthy. Go and tell them. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we can look around us and see mounds of brokenness, guilt, people who are willfully ignorant, chasing after idols made with human hands. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would give us a heart a passion to go to them, to go to them and to present the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, and I pray that you would give us creativity as we go, that we would find ways to connect with people in the world, that they might come to know the truths 
of Scripture, that they might come to know you as our creator, sustainer, and redeemer. And Lord, I pray that as we go, that you would give us success in the seeds that are planted, that we would see conversions, that we would begin to see revival breaking out in this country. So Lord, help us. And we pray this in the mighty name of Jesus Christ. Amen. In response to the gospel of Jesus Christ, let us now stand and affirm what we believe using the Philippian Creed. Christian, in whom do you believe? We believe in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth.